Section 11 of Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 7. The Germans and Gaul. The Franks and Clovis. Part 2. The majority of the learned have regarded this account of Fredegar as a romantic fable, and have declined to give it a place in history. M. Fauriel, one of the most learned associates of the Academy of Inscriptions, has given much the same opinion, but he nevertheless adds, whatever may be their authorship, the fables in question are historic in the sense that they relate to real facts, of which they are a poetical expression, a romantic development, conceived with the idea of popularizing the Frankish kings amongst the Gallo-Roman subjects. It cannot, however, be admitted that a desire to popularize the Frankish kings is a sufficient and truth-like explanation of these tales of the Gallo-Roman chroniclers, or that they are no more than a poetical expression, a romantic development of the real facts briefly noted by Gregory of Tours. The tales have a graver origin and contain more truth than would be presumed from some of the anecdotes and sayings mixed up with them. On the condition of minds and parties in Gaul at the end of the fifth century, the marriage of Clovis and Clotilde was, for the public of the period, for the barbarians and the Gallo-Romans, a great matter. Clovis and the Franks were still pagans. Gondibund and the Burgundians were Christians, but Arians. Clotilde was a Catholic Christian. To which of the two, Catholics or Arians, would Clovis ally himself? To whom, Arian, pagan, or Catholic, would Clotilde be married? Assuredly the bishops, priests, and all the Gallo-Roman clergy, for the most part Catholics, desired to see Clovis, that young and audacious Frankish chieftain, to take to wife a Catholic rather than an Arian or a pagan, and hoped to convert the pagan Clovis to Christianity much more than an Arian to Orthodoxy. The question between Catholic orthodoxy and Arianism was, at that time, a vital question for Christianity in its entirety, and St. Athanasius was not wrong in attributing to it supreme importance. It may be presumed that the Catholic clergy, the Bishop of Rheims, or the Bishop of Langres, were no strangers to the repeated praises which turned the thoughts of the Frankish king towards the Burgundian princess, and the idea of their marriage once set afloat, the Catholics, priesthood or laity, laboured undoubtedly to push it forward, whilst the Burgundian Arians exerted themselves to prevent it. Thus there took place, between opposing influences, religious and national, a most animated struggle. No astonishment can be felt, then, at the obstacles the marriage encountered, at the complications mingled with it, and at the indirect means employed on both sides to cause its success or failure. The account of Fredegaire is but a picture of this struggle and its incidents, a little amplified or altered by the imagination or the credulity of the period. But the essential features of the picture, the disguise of Aurelian, the hurry of Clotilde, the prudent recollection of Aridius, Gondibad's alterations of fear and violence, and Clotilde's vindictive passion when she is once out of danger, there is nothing at all in this out of keeping with the manners of the time or the position of the actors. Let it be added that Aurelian and Aridius are real personages who are met with elsewhere in history, and whose parts as played on the occasion of Clotilde's marriage are in harmony with the other traces that remain of their lives. The consequences of the marriage justified before long the importance which had on all sides been attached to it. Clotilde had a son. 
she was anxious to have him baptized, and urged her husband to consent. "'The gods you worship,' said she, "'are not, and can do not for themselves or others. They are of wood or stone or metal.' Clovis resisted, saying, "'It is by the command of our gods that all things are created and brought forth. It is plain that your god hath no power. There is no proof, even, that he is of the race of the gods.' But Clotilde prevailed, and she had her son baptized solemnly, hoping that the striking nature of the ceremony might win to the faith the father whom her words and prayers had been powerless to touch. The child soon died, and Clovis bitterly reproached the queen, saying, Had the child been dedicated to my gods, he would be alive. He was baptized in the name of your god, and he could not live. Clotilde defended her god and prayed. She had a second son, who was also baptized, and fell sick. It cannot be otherwise with him than with his brother, said Clovis. Baptized in the name of your Christ, he is going to die. But the child was cured and lived, and Clovis was pacified and less incredulous of Christ. An event then came to pass which affected him still more than the sickness or cure of his children. In 496 the Alemannians, a Germanic confederation like the Franks, who also had been, for some time past, assailing the Roman Empire on the banks of the Rhine or the frontiers of Switzerland, crossed the river, and invaded the settlements of the Franks on the left bank. Clovis went to the aid of his confederation, and attacked the Alemannians at Tolbiac, near Cologne. He had with him Aurelian, who had been his messenger to Clotilde, whom he had made Duke of Melon, and who commanded the forces of Seine. The battle was going ill, the Franks were wavering, and Clovis was anxious. Before setting out he had, according to Fredegaire, promised his wife that if he were victorious he would turn Christian. Other chroniclers say that Aurelian, seeing the battle in danger of being lost, said to Clovis, My lord king, believe only on the lord of heaven whom the queen, my mistress, preacheth. Clovis cried out with emotion, Christ Jesus, thou, whom my queen Clotilde calleth the son of the living God, I have invoked my own gods, and they have withdrawn from me. I believe that they have no power, since they aid not those who call upon them. Thee, very God and Lord, I invoke. If thou give me victory over these foes, if I find in thee the power that the people proclaim of thee, I will believe on thee, and will be baptized in thy name. The tide of battle turned. The Franks recovered confidence and courage, and the Alemannians, beaten and seeing their king slain, surrendered themselves to Clotilde, saying, Cease! of thy grace, to cause any more of our people to perish, for we are thine. On the return of Clovis, Clotilde, fearing he should forget his victory and his promise, secretly sent, says Gregory of Tours, to St. Remy, bishop of Rem, and prayed to him to penetrate the king's heart, with the words of salvation. St. Remy was a fervent Christian and an able bishop, and, I will listen to thee, most holy father, said Clovis, willingly, but there is a difficulty. The people that follow me will not give up their gods, but I am about to assemble them, and will speak to them according to thy word. The king found the people more docile or better prepared than he had represented to the bishop. Even before he opened his mouth the greater part of those present cried out, We abjure the mortal gods, we are ready to follow the immortal god whom Remy preacheth. About three thousand Frankish warriors, however, persisted in their intention of remaining pagans, and deserting Clovis, betook themselves to Ragnacare, the Frankish king of Cambrai, who was destined ere long to pay dearly for this acquisition. So soon as St. Remy was informed of this good disposition on the part of king and people, he fixed Christmas Day of this year, 496, 
for the ceremony of the baptism of those grand neophytes. The description of it is borrowed from the historian of the Church of Rem, Frodoard by name, born at the close of the ninth century. He gathered together the essential points of it from the life of St. Remy, written shortly before that period by the saint's celebrated successor at Rem, Archbishop Hinkmar. The bishop, says he, went in search of the king at early morn in his bedchamber, in order that, taking him at the moment of freedom from secular cares, he might more freely communicate to him the mysteries of the holy word. The king's chamber-people receive him with great respect, and the king himself runs forward to meet him. Thereupon they pass together into an oratory dedicated to St. Peter, chief of the apostles, and adjoining the king's apartment. When the bishop, the king, and the queen had taken their places on the seats prepared for them, and admission had been given to some clerics, and also some friends and household servants of the king, the venerable bishop began his instructions on the subject of salvation. Meanwhile, preparations are being made along the road from the palace to the baptistry. Curtains and valuable stuffs are hung up, the houses on either side of the street are dressed out, the baptistry is sprinkled with balm and all manner of perfume. The procession moves from the palace, the clergy lead the way with the holy gospels, the cross, and standards, singing hymns and spiritual songs. Then comes the bishop, leading the king by the hand, after him the queen, lastly the people. On the road it is said that the king asked the bishop if that were the kingdom promised him. No, answered the prelate, but it is the entrance to the road that leads to it. At the moment when the king bent his head over the fountain of life, Lower thy head with humility, Sicambrian, cried the eloquent bishop, adore what thou hast burned, burn what thou hast adored. The king's two sisters, Ablofleed and Lantichild, likewise received baptism, and so at the same time did three thousand of the Frankish army, besides a large number of women and children. When it was known that Clovis had been baptized by St. Remy, and with what striking circumstance, great was the satisfaction amongst the Catholics. The chief Burgundian prelate, Avitus, bishop of Vienne, wrote to the Frankish king, Your faith is our victory. In choosing for you and yours, you have pronounced for all. Divine providence hath given you as an arbiter to our age. Greece can boast of having a sovereign of our persuasion, but she is no longer alone in possession of this precious gift. The rest of the world doth share her light. Pope Anastasius hastened to express his joy to Clovis, the church, our common mother, he wrote, rejoiceth to have borne unto God so great a king. Continue, glorious and illustrious son, to cheer the heart of this tender mother, be a column of iron to support her, and she in her turn will give thee victory over all thine enemies. Clovis was not a man to omit turning his Catholic popularity to the account of his ambition. At the very time when he was receiving these testimonies of good will from the heads of the church, he learned that Gondobad, disquieted, no doubt, at the conversion of his powerful neighbour, had just made a vain attempt, at a conference held at Lyon, to reconcile in his kingdom the Catholics and the Arians. Clovis considered the moment favourable to his projects of aggrandizement at the expense of the Burgundian king. He fomented the dissensions which already prevailed between Gondobad and his brother, Godegisile, assured himself to the latter's complicity, and suddenly entered Burgundy with his army. Gondobad, betrayed and beaten at the first encounter at Dijon, fled to the south of his kingdom, and went and shut himself up in Avignon. Clovis pursued and besieged him there. Gondobad, in great alarm, asked counsel of his Roman confidant Aridius, 
who had but lately foretold to him what the marriage of his niece Clotilde would bring upon him. "'On every side,' said the king, "'I am encompassed by perils, and I know not what to do. Lo, here be these barbarians come upon us to slay us and destroy the land.' "'To escape death,' answered Aridius, "'thou must appease the ferocity of this man. Now, if it please thee, I will feign to fly from thee and go over to him. So soon as I shall be with him, I will do so that he ruin neither thee nor the land.' only have thou care to perform whatsoever I shall ask of thee, until the Lord in his goodness deign to make thy cause triumph. All that thou shalt bid I will do, says Gundabad. So Aridius left Gundabad and went his way to Clovis, and said, Most pious king, I am thy humble servant. I give up this wretched Gundabad, and come unto thy mightiness. If thy goodness deign to cast a glance upon me, thou and thy descendants will find in me a servant of integrity and fidelity." Clovis received him very kindly, and kept him by him, for Aridius was agreeable in conversation, wise in counsel, just in judgment, and faithful in whatever was committed to his care. As the siege continued, Aridius said to Clovis, O king, if the glory of thy greatness would suffer thee to listen to the words of my feebleness, though thou needst not counsel, I would submit them to thee in all fidelity, that they might be of use to thee, whether for thyself or for the towns by which thou dost propose to pass." Wherefore keepest thou here thine army, whilst thine enemy doth hide himself in a well-fortified place? Thou ravagest the fields, thou pillagest the corn, thou cuttest down the vines, thou fellest the olive-trees, thou destroyest all the produce of the land, and yet thou succeedest not in destroying thine adversary. Rather send thou unto him deputies, and lay on him a tribute to be paid to thee every year. Thus the land will be preserved, and thou wilt be lord for ever over him who owes thee tribute. If he refuse, thou shalt then do what pleaseth thee. Clovis found the council good, ordered his army to return home, sent deputies to Gondabad, and called upon him to undertake the payment every year of a fixed tribute. Gondabad paid for the time, and promised to pay punctually for the future. And peace appeared to be made between the two barbarians. Pleased with his campaign against the Burgundians, Clovis kept on good terms with Gundabad, who was to be henceforth a simple tributary, and transferred to the Visigoths of Aquitania, and their king, Alaric II, his views of conquest. He had there the same pretext for attack and the same means of success. Alaric and his Visigoths were Arians, and between them and the bishops of southern Gaul, nearly all Orthodox Catholics, there were permanent ill-will and distrust. Alaric attempted to conciliate their good will. In 506 a council met at Agda. The thirty-four bishops of Aquitania attended in person or by delegate. The king protested that he had no design of persecuting the Catholics. The bishops, at the opening of the council, offered prayers for the king. But Alaric did not forget that, immediately after the conversion of Clovis, Belusian, bishop of Tours, had conspired in favour of the Frankish king, and the bishops of Aquitania regarded Belusian as a martyr, for he had been deposed, without trial, from his see, and taken as a prisoner first to Toulouse, and afterwards into Spain, where in a short time he had been put to death. In vain did the glorious chief of the race of Goths, Theodoric the Great, king of Italy, father-in-law of Alaric, and brother-in-law of Clovis, exert himself to prevent any outbreak between the two kings. In 498 Alaric, no doubt at his father-in-law's solicitation, wrote to Clovis, If my brother consent thereto, I would, following my desires and by the grace of God, have an interview with him. 
The interview took place at a small island in the Loire, called the Island d'Or, or Saint-Jean, near Amboise. The two kings, says Gregory of Tours, conversed, ate, and drank together, and separated with mutual promises of friendship. The positions and passions of each soon made the promises of no effect. In 505 Clovis was seriously ill. The bishops of Aquitania testified warm interest in him, and one of them, Quintian, bishop of Rhodes, being on this account persecuted by the Visigoths, had to seek refuge at Clermont, in Avergne. Clovis no longer concealed his designs. In 507 he assembled his principal chieftains, and it displeases me greatly, said he, that these Arians should possess a portion of the Gauls. March we forth with the help of God, drive we them from that land, for it is very goodly, and bring we it under our own power. The Franks applauded their king, and the army set out on the march in the direction of Portiers, where Alaric happened at that time to be. As a portion of the troops was crossing the territory of Tours, says Gregory, who was shortly afterwards its bishop, Clovis forbade, out of respect for St. Martin, anything to be taken, save grass and water. One of the army, however, having found some hay belonging to a poor man, said, This is grass. We do not break the king's commands by taking it. And in spite of the poor man's resistance, he robbed him of his hay. Clovis, informed of the fact, slew the soldier on the spot with one sweep of his sword, saying, What will become of our hopes of victory if we offend St. Martin? Alaric had prepared for the struggle, and the two armies met on the plain of Vouille, on the banks of the little river Clain, a few leagues from Poitiers. The battle was very severe. The Goths, says Gregory of Tours, fought with missiles, the Franks sword in hand. Clovis met and with his own hand slew Alaric in the fray. At the moment of striking his blow, two Goths fell suddenly upon Clovis, and attacked him with their pikes on either side, but he escaped death, thanks to his cuirass and the agility of his horse. Beaten and kingless, the Goths retreated in great disorder, and Clovis, pursuing his march, arrived without opposition at Bordeaux, where he settled down with his Franks for the winter. When the war season returned, he marched on Toulouse, the capital of the Visigoths, which he likewise occupied without resistance, and where he seized a portion of the treasure of the Visigothic kings. He quitted it to lay siege to Carcassonne, which had been made by the Romans into the stronghold of Septimeia. There his course of conquest was destined to end. After the battle of Voye he had sent his oldest son Theodoric in command of a division, with orders to cross central Gaul from west to east, to go and join the Burgundians of Gondibad, who had promised his assistance, and in conjunction with them to attack the Visigoths on the banks of the Rhone and in Narbonnes. The young Frank boldly executed his father's orders, but the intervention of Theodoric the Great, king of Italy, prevented the success of the operation. He sent an army into Gaul to the aid of his son-in-law Alaric, and the united Franks and Burgundians failed in their attacks upon the Visigoths of the eastern provinces. Clovis had no idea of compromising by his obstinacy the conquests already accomplished. He therefore raised the siege of Carcassonne, returned first to Toulouse and then to Bordeaux, took Angoulême, the only town of importance he did not possess in Aquitania, and feeling reasonably sure that the Visigoths, who even with the aid that had come from Italy, had great difficulty in defending what remained to them of southern Gaul, would not come and dispute with him what he had already conquered, he halted at Tours, and stayed there some time, to enjoy on the spot the fruits of his victory, and to establish his power in his new possessions. 
It appears that even the Britons of Amorica tendered to him at that time, through the interposition of Melinens, bishop of Rennes, if not their actual submission, at any rate their subordination and homage. Clovis at the same time had his self-respect flattered in a manner to which barbaric conquerors always attach great importance. Anastasius, emperor of the East, with whom he had already had some communication, sent him at Tours a solemn embassy, bringing him the titles and insignia of patrician and council. Clovis, says Gregory of Tours, put on the tunic of purple and the chamis and the diadem, then, mounting his horse, he scattered with his own hand and with much bounty gold and silver amongst the people, on the road which lies between the gate of the court belonging to the Basilica of St. Martin and the church of the city. From that day he was called Consul and Augustus. On leaving the city of Tours he repaired to Paris, where he fixed the seat of his government. Paris was certainly the political centre of his dominions, the intermediate point between the early settlements of his race and himself in Gaul, and his new Gallic conquests. But he lacked some of the possessions nearest to him, and most naturally, in his own opinion, his. To the east, north, and south-west of Paris were settled some independent Frankish tribes, governed by chieftains with the name of kings. So soon as he had settled at Paris, it was the one fixed idea of Clovis to reduce them all to subjection. He had conquered the Burgundians and the Visigoths. It remained for him to conquer and unite together all the Franks. The barbarian showed himself in his true colors, during this new enterprise, with his violence, his craft, his cruelty, and his perfidy. He began with the most powerful of the tribes, the Ripurian Franks. He sent secretly to Cloderic, son of Sigebert, their king, saying, Thy father hath become old, and his wound maketh him limp a one foot. If he should die, his kingdom will come to thee of right, together with our friendship. Cloderic had his father assassinated whilst asleep in his tent, and sent messengers to Clovis, saying, My father is dead, and I have in my power his kingdom and his treasures. Send thou unto me certain of thy people, and I will gladly give into their hands whatsoever amongst these treasures shall seem like to please thee. The envoys of Clovis came, and as they were examining in detail the treasures of Sigebert, Cloderic said to them, this is the coffer wherein my father was wont to pile up his gold pieces. Plunge, said they, thy hand right to the bottom of that that none escape thee. Cloderic bent forward, and one of the envoys lifted his battle-axe and cleft his skull. Clovis went to Cologne and convoked the Franks of the canton. Learn, said he, that which hath happened. As I was sailing on the river Scheldt, Cloderic, son of my relative, did vex his father, saying I was minded to slay him and as Sigebert was flying across the forest of Bouchard, his son himself sent bandits, who fell upon him and slew him. Cloderic also is dead, smitten I know not by whom, as he was opening his father's treasures. I am altogether unconcerned in it all, and I could not shed the blood of my relatives, for it is a crime. But since it hath so happened, I give unto you counsel, which ye shall follow, if it seem to you good. Turn ye towards me, and live under my protection." and they who were present hoisted him on a huge buckler, and hailed him king. After Sigebert and the Ripurian Franks came the Franks of Tyrone, and Shiraric their king. He had refused, twenty years before, to march with Clovis against the Roman, Siagrius. Clovis, who had not forgotten it, attacked him, took him and his son prisoners, and had them both shorn, ordering that Shiraric should be ordained priest and his son deacon. Shiraric was much grieved, 
Then said his son to him, Here be branches which were cut from a green tree, and are not yet wholly dried up. Soon they will sprout forth again. May it please God that he who hath wrought all this shall die as quickly. Clovis considered these words as a menace, had both father and son beheaded, and took possession of their dominions. Ragnacare, king of the Franks of Cambrai, was the third to be attacked. He had served Clovis against Siagrius, but Clovis took no account of that. Ragnacare, being beaten, was preparing for flight, when he was seized by his own soldiers, who tied his hands behind his back, and took him to Clovis along with his brother Riquier. "'Wherefore hast thou dishonoured our race,' said Clovis, "'by letting thyself wear bonds? "'Twere better to have died,' and cleft his skull with one stroke of his battle-axe. Then, turning to Riquier, "'Hadst thou succoured thy brother,' said he, "'he had assuredly not been bound, and felled him likewise at his feet. Rignomer, king of the Franks of Le Mans, met the same fate, but not at the hands, only by the order of Clovis. So Clovis remained sole king of the Franks, for all the independent chieftains had disappeared. It is said that one day, after all these murders, Clovis, surrounded by his trusted servants, cried, Woe is me, who am left as a traveller amongst strangers, and who have no longer relatives to lend me support in the day of adversity. Thus do the most shameless take pleasure in exhibiting sham sorrow after crimes they cannot disavow. It cannot be known whether Clovis ever felt in his soul any scruple or regret for his many acts of ferocity and perfidy, or if he looked, as sufficient expiation, upon the favour he had bestowed on the churches and their bishops, upon the gifts he lavished on them, and upon the absolutions he demanded of them. In times of mingled barbarism and faith, there are strange cases of credulity in the way of bargains made with divine justice. We read in the life of St. Eleutherius, Bishop of Tournay, the native land of Clovis, that at one of those periods when the conscience of the Frankish king must have been most heavily laden, he presented himself one day at the church. "'My lord king,' said the bishop, "'I know wherefore thou art come to me.' "'I've nothing special to say unto thee,' rejoined Clovis. "'Say not so, O king,' replied the bishop. "'Thou hast sinned, and darest not avow it.' The king was moved, and ended by confessing that he had deeply sinned, and had need of large pardon. St. Eleutherus betook himself to prayer. The king came back the next day, and the bishop gave him a paper, on which was written, by divine hand, he said, the pardon granted to royal offences which might not be revealed. Clovis accepted this absolution, and loaded the church of Tournay with his gifts. In 511, the very year of his death, his last act in life was the convocation at Orléans of a council, which was attended by thirty bishops from the different parts of his kingdom, and at which were adopted thirty-one canons that, whilst granting to the church great privileges and means of influence, in many cases favourable to humanity and respect for the rights of individuals, bound the church closely to the state, and gave to royalty, even in ecclesiastical matters, great power. The bishops, on breaking up, sent these canons to Clovis, praying him to give them the sanction of his adhesion, which he did. A few months afterwards, on the 27th of November, 511, Clovis died at Paris, and was buried in the church of St. Peter and St. Paul, nowadays St. Genevieve, built by his wife Queen Clotilde, who survived him. It was but right to make the reader intimately acquainted with that great barbarian who, with all his vices and all his crimes, brought about, or rather began, two great matters which have already endured through fourteen centuries, and still endure, 
for he founded the French monarchy and Christian France. Such men and such facts have a right to be closely studied and set in a clear light by history. Nothing similar will be seen for two centuries, under the descendants of Clovis, the Merovingians. Amongst them will be encountered none but those personages whom death reduces to insignificance, whatever may have been their rank in the world, and of whom Virgil thus speaks to Dante, Non ragionum di for, magari passa. Waste no words on them, one glance and pass thou on. Inferno, Canto 3 End of chapter 7